It's good to be back with the very reverend, holy Dr. Clattenburg. And um, I love it here. And I sincerely mean that. I love it here uh, because this church values the presence of Jesus. And this church actually believes that Jesus is who he says he is. So I sincerely mean that. It's a breath of fresh air to be here. And uh, I owe everything to Jesus. Before we go any further, I just wanna thank the Lord for his mercy. If you'll remember, in Genesis chapter one, the Lord spoke and the universe was formed. But when God created humanity, God did not speak. Instead, the scripture tells us that God scooped up a mound of dirt and breathed. God speaks in galaxies form, but he saved his very breath for us. We were created and formed for the breath of God. That word God breathed in them is a Hebrew word, ruach. And um, it's the word that's translated spirit every time in the Old Testament. Every time it says the spirit of God, it's the same word that's used when God breathed into the mound of dirt. Uh, we were created for the spirit of God. And even though we were created for the spirit of God, sometimes we encounter situations that don't line up with our reality. What do you do when you encounter a scenario that doesn't match the promises of the mighty one? What do you do, what do I do when we hear rumors of a God who can knock down walls and yet we sit, sit beside the ruins of those walls, finding ourselves in a scenario just, just doesn't seem to match up to the God we've heard about? What I wanna talk to you about briefly today, and it will be brief, is your passion for Jesus. Because at the end of the day, there are some things that our passion for Jesus and only our passion for Jesus will accomplish in our life. People ask all the time, well, if God is sovereign, if God knows everything, why do we pray? Can we actually change God's mind? Well, I really don't know the answer to that question. Frankly, I think it's a question not even worth asking. I don't care if we can change God's mind. What I do know is we can influence God's heart. I wanna to talk to you about your passion for Jesus. Thank God for my wife, Allie, been married 21 years. We do have two daughters, Leighton is 18, Dallin is 17. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my family and their support and their prayer. So I'll quote to you the prayer my wife sent me a text of, God, I pray that you will shake the earth from Orlando. Church in the sun, amen. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 29, it's a true story, it really happened. It says this, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out with a loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out even louder, saying, have mercy on us, Jesus, son of David. And Jesus stood still and he called to them and he asked them this question, what do you want me to do for you? And they asked, Lord, that our eyes might be open. And Jesus had compassion on them. He touched their eyes and immediately their physical sight was restored to them and they followed him. I remember the first blind beggar I ever encountered. It was in a beautiful city called Antigua and the even more beautiful country known as Guatemala. We were walking around the streets, cobblestone streets that were laid by hand centuries ago. And we're walking around and I don't speak Spanish, I try. I know enough to offend the lady when I order an empanada at the restaurant. But I don't speak Spanish, but I do attempt. I, I, get, a, I get an A for effort, that's for sure. Although I don't speak Spanish, and I certainly did not speak the dialect of this person in Antigua, 
I did recognize the tune. And as we came around the corner of a building, I heard it. I heard the sound to that old church hymn, Amazing Grace. Do you remember the words? And there he was. I mean, no disrespect. I thought it was a stump at first because I looked over and there he was propped up beside the curb of the cobblestone street and he had no arms and he had no legs and he was blind. His eyes were as white as the pages in my Bible. And he was propped up on the side of the street, no arms, no legs, blind, and he was singing a song in a language I didn't understand but the words I was very familiar with. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And I looked at him. I was moved with compassion, and I thought, this guy is, has legitimate need. And I reached into my pocket. I was going to give him all of the money I had in my pocket. A friend of mine who at that time lived in Guatemala, he was with me, and he saw exactly what I was doing, and he grabbed my arm, and he said, wait, Heath. And I remember we had an altercation on the side of the street a few feet away from the beggar, and I became angry with him. I said, how in the world can you tell me not to give my money to the beggar? What's your problem? Can't you see? It's a legitimate need. He's obviously not faking it. He has no arms. He has no legs. He's completely blind. He's begging. He needs help. And he looked at me and he said this. He said, Heath, what you don't understand, in many parts of the world, often those who are born with physical challenges or deformities, often they become enslaved and victims of human trafficking. And they're forced to beg. And what you don't know is if they don't meet their quota of begging for the day, Often they are beaten, but if they exceed their quota for begging, then their pimp will raise their quota, and they're expected to bring back more money the next day. He said, if you give them too much or too little, you actually do more harm than good. This situation requires wisdom, he said. So I submitted to his authority, understanding that this guy who lives in Guatemala knows more about Guatemala than a guy who lives in the Midwest. And so we walked up to the beggar. I stood a few feet away and he leaned into the beggar and this is what he said, and I quote, sir, if God's grace is so amazing, then why do you sit here by the roadside begging? And without a hesitation, he responded to my friend, the blind beggar did, and he said, sir, if you do not see how amazing God's grace is, you are even more blind than I am. My friend looked at me and he said, this guy's for real. <laughs> reached into my pocket, gave him a certain amount of money. My friend leaned in and whispered to him exactly how much it was so that someone wouldn't try to take advantage of him. On that day, I learned how to see from the blind man. What I want to talk to you about today briefly is learning to see from the blind man. Matthew chapter 20 tells us a story of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who is Jesus. I don't want to assume that you know who Jesus was. Well, Jesus is a historical figure Jesus was a Hebrew male who spoke in the Aramaic language, and yet his teachings are recorded in Greek. It's interesting that Jesus never penned a word that has been preserved, and yet he is the word of God made flesh, according to John chapter 1, verse 14. Some scholars tell us Jesus communicated on a third grade level. Others tell us he communicated on a sixth grade level, which is that I frankly have no idea. What I do know is Jesus communicated in a language even children could understand. Don't you love that about God? That God knows that knows by name each one of the 300,000 species of beetles alone, and yet God packages truth in a language children can understand. How do you know that, Heath? Remember, it was a little boy who brought five loaves of barley bread, the bread of the poor, 
and two small fish to the mighty one. He gave thanks and he fed the multitude. I love that Jesus walked into the presence of those who were demonized. The demons cowered and trembled in fear and yet children felt safe around him. You know that Jesus did not come to the earth to convert people to Christianity. Jesus did not come to the earth to teach people necessarily what to believe. I would suggest Jesus came to teach people how to believe. Know that Jesus is not the most relevant way. He's not the easy way. He's not the American way. He's not even the Republican way or the Democrat way, is he? He's the only way. For there is... For there is no other name under heaven given to men, and I will add women, by which we must be saved. That's who Jesus is. Jesus gave his life. He died on the cross. Thank God he didn't stay in the grave. He was resurrected. In a few short weeks, pastor reminded me today, we celebrate Easter in a few weeks. That's who Jesus is. And of all people to walk past the blind beggar, it was not just an itinerant Jewish rabbi. It was not just a personality, it was Jesus of Nazareth himself. The gospel record says, as they went out of Jericho, what is Jericho? I don't want to assume that you know. Well, Jericho, you can go there to this day on the screens behind me are some of the ruins that were excavated by German archeologists at the beginning of the 20th century. But Jericho is an area, a city, about six miles north of the Dead Sea. Again, you can go there to this day. Jericho, if you'll go there, you'll find that you're in the middle of the desert. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's like nothing. There's no life. It's really not technically green. But what's interesting about the ancient site of Jericho is it was built on top of an underground freshwater spring. So in the middle of a desert, there was an oasis that received irrigation from underneath the ground. And because of that, it became the perfect place for those who traveled on the east-west trade route that connected the Transjordan to the highlands of Judah. They often stopped there to fill up their canteens with water and hydrate their, their animals. And because of the fresh water underground spring, it was also a place where they began to cultivate um, uh, the soil and grow various crops. And so it became an epicenter of trade. And in the middle of the desert, when you have access to clean water, which I have to say this, thank you for your support of Convoy of Hope. Um, this church has been very involved and very engaged in Convoy of Hope over the years. And I do want to thank you for your support. Something as simple as water can change somebody's life. A few weeks ago, I was in Burkina Faso, um, where I learned that the average woman in Africa spends four hours a day standing in line just to get water and another two hours a day to go find firewood. That's six hours a day just to get wood to start a fire so that they can boil the water to kill the parasites so that they can stay alive. It's spiritual to dig a water well in the middle of nowhere. And I want to thank you for your support of Convoy of Hope. <clears throat> we empower women we go to countries where women are treated like property and we teach them that even they are made in the image of God and we have micro plus enterprise programs and we help women end the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty in their family. We train farmers how to end the cycle of poverty by planting seed in the ground. We feed hundreds of thousands of kids. We share the gospel. We've distributed over a billion dollars in life-saving supplies and impacted over 100 million people with the gospel. 
and it wouldn't happen without people like you. It's spiritual to give water. Well, Jericho was a place where people could receive water. And because of water, it became an epicenter of trade and a lucrative amount of money exchanged hands. And because of that, whenever there is uh, an enterprise, often those whose motives are not pure gather as well. And Jericho not only became known as an epicenter of trade, it also became a place that was unsafe to walk the stone streets at night because thieves and vagabonds and criminals and robbers gathered around because they knew that everybody on the highway stopped in Jericho and it was the perfect place to rob somebody. So they decided to fortify the city. They built ancient Jericho on top of a 70-foot high, it's called a tell, it's a mound. And Jericho had two walls, they had a double wall, and the first wall was, was between 15 and 25 feet, the second wall was about 70 feet, and for those of you that already, you're so glad you don't have to go back to math, let me just summarize it, it's about a 14-story tall building. Next time you drive through downtown Orlando, count out 14 stories, that's approximately how high the wall was, okay? So they fortified the city, the wall was six feet thick, they stockpiled a lot of food. Joshua chapter three tells us the harvest had just occurred actually, so they had a lot of food, they had an underground spring, it was the perfect place that would withstand a siege. So if you were traveling on the highway and you stop in Jericho, not only could you make money and have access to water, but you were also kept safe from criminals. But that piece of property was part of God's promise for his people. And in the book of Joshua, chapter six, scripture tells us that the Hebrews walked around the ancient city and they lifted up a shout and God miraculously caused the walls to fall down. It's a true story, it really happened. It's more than just a song that Elevation Church sings. God knocked the walls down. And Jericho became known as a place that if you wanted tangible evidence that God is who he says he is, go to Jericho. Now, as a dad uh, with two daughters, I can just imagine it this way. A dad and, his, and, and his, his wife, they take their little girls on a weekend getaway to Jericho. And can you imagine one of the little girls tugging on dad's robe? Hey, daddy, what is that over there? What, sweetie? That big, massive pile of bricks and stones, what is that? Well, sweetie, let me tell you a story. You see, this used to be a fortified city. And one day, the God you don't see, who is much more real than anything you do see, the great God Jehovah knocked the walls down with the shouts of praise of his people. What you see over there, sweetie, is tangible evidence and proof that God is who God says he is. Okay? So if you ever wanted proof that the great God Yahweh reigns sovereignly and supremely over all of the other gods, little g, then you could simply go to Jericho. But Jericho, over the years, a city known as the place of broken walls, I would suggest became a place also filled with broken people. And in Matthew chapter 20, on the road leading out of the ancient city of Jericho, the same place where God knocked the walls down, there are two blind men sitting by the road begging. I can't prove this, but because I do daydream when I read the Bible, I imagine it this way, that under the hot Jericho sun, perhaps one or both of the beggars just needed a reprieve from the heat, and they pitched their head up against one of the stones that was on the ground, maybe even one of the stones that was hand-placed into the ancient wall that God knocked down. If 
I was one of the blind beggars, this is what I would think. God, if you're so real and if you can knock the wall down, why don't you heal me? Have you ever been there? Have you ever read the Bible or heard rumors of a God who, according to Job, performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted, and you read scripture and then you look at your life, you look at your situation and you ask, God, if you can do it for them, if you can do it then, why, why don't you do it for me? Have you ever been there? And we begin to ask questions like, can we really change God's mind? And then at some point we realize it doesn't matter because it's evident from scripture we can influence God's heart. And of all people, Jesus walks past the blind beggars on the Jericho Road. As they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was about to pass by, they heard. The first thought I want to leave you with today is this, that we are imprisoned not by our circumstance. Rather, what imprisons us is our response. If anybody had an excuse not to cry out to Jesus, it was the blind men. After all, they had no proof. I remember there was a little boy who, when I was younger, he was blind. And some of the mean kids, the bullies at recess, used to play jokes on the boy and tell him that somebody was around him when they weren't. And they watched and listened and jeered as the little boy talked to somebody who wasn't even there because he was blind. People can be mean sometimes. How do we know that some of the little kids didn't say to the blind men, hey, let's, let's tease him and tell him that Jesus is there. They had no proof. They had no proof that Jesus was there. They had no proof that Jesus was about to pass by. They simply heard. They didn't see. And the Bible tells us as soon as they heard that Jesus was about to pass by, they cried out. They didn't whisper. The last thing on their mind was their reputation. The last thing on their mind was remaining dignified. They heard he was about to pass by. And if anybody had an excuse to not allow their spiritual passion to push them to a place of being desperate and lovesick for Jesus, it was the blind beggar. If anybody had an excuse, it was them. But we learn from them that what imprisons us is not our response. What imprisons us is what we do with our response. And the reality is this, they cried out. And what's interesting is the Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus stopped. Actually, Jesus kept walking on. The Bible tells us Jesus was going to pass them by. They cry out. That word cry out is a word that means to scream and to shriek. And the crowd around them told them to be quiet. Literally, it says, shut up. You know, I wonder how many people on the earth, when they begin to cultivate a passion for Jesus and they cry out, and a person or a crowd or a situation in their life tells them to be quiet, and unfortunately they do. You know, at the end of the day, regardless of our gender or ethnicity or socioeconomic status or what side of the tracks we come from, at the end of the day, we are all as close to God as we want to be. I understand that some of us in the room come from challenging situations. I understand that. I'm the first Christian who's ever existed in my ancestry. Some of you don't have a set of parents to look at. Some of you have had children and you have no clue how to raise them. 
Some of you don't know how to communicate or how to confront in a marriage. How many of you know when you become a Christian, you don't get amnesia? When you become a Christian, you still have to deal with your issues. You still have to go through life. And God gives us a brand new spirit, but our soul is not made brand new. Our soul must be renewed. And when we come to Christ, sometimes life isn't always easy. And the reality is sometimes we have rational excuses, logical excuses, but what can stand in the way of a breakthrough or a miracle is often one rational excuse. They had every reason to remain quiet and they cried out and then the crowd told them to shut up and I love what the text says next. They cried out even louder. That tells me it's okay to cry out more than once. There are some people in the room, your prayer life suffers, and I'm not picking on you, but your prayer life suffers, and the reason why is you have cried out, and you didn't get the result you wanted, so you don't cry out again. And we make the mistake of thinking that the purpose of prayer is to get an answer. The purpose of prayer is not to get an answer. The Bible tells us all of our days have been declared the end from the beginning. He knows what we have need of before we ask. The purpose of prayer, I would suggest to you, is not to get the answer, it's to get a hold of God. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, God implements prayer and folds prayer into the fabric of his people so that men are not too proud to stand in line and ask for bread. Prayer is good for us. Because sometimes we wake up in the morning and we breathe air that the sovereign one gives us and we tend to think that whatever happens in life is up to us. No, it's up to you and it's up to Jesus. We're in prison not by our circumstance but by our response. And what I get from this also is that much of what God does in this life is not up to God. It's also up to you. They cried out. Now, if I was blind and I'm sitting by the road and Jesus of Nazareth walks by, I would probably cry out, Jesus, heal me. They don't cry out for healing. They don't cry out for $10 million deposited in an offshore Swiss bank account. They don't cry out for a job. They cry out for mercy. Can I tell you, you'll know whether or not you encounter the real Jesus if you're made aware of your need for mercy. Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve and grace is when God gives us what we do not deserve. They cry out for mercy. And they don't just cry out to Jesus, they cry out to Jesus, the son of David. That term, the son of David, is a term in the Old Testament that was often always used actually to refer to the Messiah. The one who is to come. The one who will lay his life down for the sins of the people. They knew something about Jesus, although they couldn't see him with their physical eye. They knew something about Jesus that the surrounding religious scholars, how do you know they were there? It says the multitude followed Jesus. And a detailed study of the Gospels, you'll find out that at this time, the multitude was filled with people who were Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. And they were religious scholars and they spent Decades studying about the son of David, but the son of David was in their midst and they knew it not. I love how Eugene Peterson put it, the author of 
the Bible version, the message, he says, the devil does some of his greatest work behind stained glass. And one of the safest places you can hide from God is a religion. The crowd was filled with people who knew God in their mind, but they did not know God in their heart. And the only people, according to the gospel record, that is, that cried out, Son of David, at this time, were two blind men who couldn't even see. But today we learn how to see from the blind man, don't we? Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the second time they cry out, Jesus stopped. Why do we stop crying out? I live in a home with three ladies who are beautiful and precious and breathtaking, but they are ladies. And I like that, by the way. And so I don't mind it at all. I buckle up about October and get ready for Hallmark movies. You know, if I could, if I could just say this, and I mean no offense, uh, if, you, if you're a writer for Hallmark, please forgive me, but I'm convinced that all you have to do is change the name and change the city, and every Hallmark movie is the same. Right? Can I get a witness? <laughs> So I buckle up. We watch a lot of Hallmark movies. I don't mind them. Actually, there's some decent lessons, and they're fairly clean, fairly clean entertainment. And um, we watch a lot of HGTV. That's decent. But um, I needed some testosterone, so we've had them for a few years now. We got a dog. We got a golden doodle. And he's a beast. And so I mow the grass with my dog. And he walks up and down the yard with me, and at times it works. I throw the ball every now and then, one out of 100, He'll run and get the ball and bring it back to me. For the most part, I go after the ball I throw, and he stares at me like an absolute moron. And uh, well, I talk to my dog, so people probably think I have a great prayer life in the yard. No, I'm not talking to Jesus half the time. I talk to my dog, and he never mouths back. It's nice. But I noticed one time when I was hanging out with Fig after one of our lawn mowing sessions, I noticed this little critter crawling on him. It was a flea. Now, if you're a pet owner, you know that fleas are of the devil. And so we spend a few hundred dollars a year to make sure that Fig never brings fleas into our house. The last thing I want is a little bug crawling on me when I'm watching Hallmark, right? Don't want to be distracted. <laughs> but as I was researching fleas, I also discovered they're fascinating. And fleas, they're, you know, about, I don't know, one and a half to three millimeters. It depends on what part of the world you're in. But fleas can pull 160 times their weight. To put that into perspective, if you, sir, you're a fairly large buff man, so if you put a few thousand 200-pound baby elephants on your back and walked, that's the direct equivalent of what a flea can do. Fleas can jump 30,000 times in a row without stopping. I'm sorry, ladies, but female fleas are almost always larger than the male fleas. A flea, when it jumps, accelerates 50 times faster than when a space shuttle launches. Fleas are fascinating creatures. If a flea jumps, because if a flea can jump uh, in proportion to its body, it would be like you and I standing in one end zone of the football field and jumping to the other end zone without touching the ground. That would, that's what it would look like if he were a flea. 
Well, a retired school teacher named John Gatto decided to conduct an experiment on fleas. He was as fascinated with the little beast as I am. And so what he did is he put a lot of fleas in a jar and put the lid on, and he watched as fleas can jump so much higher than the threshold or the lid of the jar. He watched as the fleas would jump up and hit their, I'll call it a head. I don't know if they have a head, but they hit their head on the lid of the jar. And then after a period of time, John Gatto took the lid off of the jar and he watched as these fleas could have jumped well beyond where the lid used to be. They would always stop just short of where the lid was. The fleas became conditioned to stop going as far as they were created to go. I would suggest to you that's why we stop crying out. Because we become conditioned. We become conditioned. And when we experience something that doesn't line up with what the scriptures tell us, then we'll rationalize it. And we begin to come up with a doctrine or a theology as to why God is not who God says he is. Or we begin to say things like, well, God answers everybody else's prayers but mine. Or God's still mad at me because of what I did when I was 15. Or you know what? Maybe this is just what I'm destined for. Everybody else gets breakthrough but me. Everybody else gets an answer to prayer but me. I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. I should have started Thailand earlier, and we come up with all these things, and we forget that the loudest voice is not always the most important one, and we believe the lie of the evil one rather than daring to believe that God is who he says he is. I wonder if you have stopped jumping to, according to the capacity that God gave you because somebody put a lid over you. The reality is, is at the end of the day, we are all as close to God as we want to be. Period. Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask, imagine, or think, comma, according to the power that is at work within you. That means if you've got two ounces, that's what God has to work with. You have two million ounces, that's what God has to work with. There's something about being passionate for Jesus and expanding your spiritual capacity. You say, how do you know that's possible? Well, let's look at Jesus, who is the pattern worth emulating. In Luke chapter two, it says that Jesus was full of wisdom. That means that Jesus was so full, you couldn't put one more drop of wisdom in him. If you, if you bumped him, he, he dripped. He was full of wisdom. At the end of Luke 2, it says Jesus grew in wisdom. How do you grow in something you're full of? You get a bigger container. And I don't know about you, but I am desperate to have a bigger container that God can work with. So if God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all, we could ever ask, imagine, or think above all we could ever ask for in prayer, above all we could ever imagine or think according to the power that's at work within you and within me. I want to make sure that I give God plenty to work with. As a matter of fact, I want to give God more than he needs. Well, the Bible says they cried out more than once, and they didn't catch the attention of Jesus the first time they cried out, but they did catch the attention of Jesus the second time, and that tells me that what caught the attention of Jesus was not their condition. What caught the attention of Jesus was their passion. 
It says Jesus stood still. That word stood still, histemai, it means to stop and call to attention. It would be like a military soldier. Sir, yes, sir. It's not like Jesus is walking down the road. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Yeah, Peter, I could have sworn I heard somebody say my name over here. It's not what he does. Jesus doesn't do a drive-by and look at him. I've got somewhere to go. After all, Jesus is leaving Jericho to start his march towards the cross. He's getting ready to enter into the Passion Week. He will never pass this way again, according to the gospel record. Jesus is about to die for the sins of the world. You want to talk about an important to-do list. He's getting ready to die for the sins of the world. Jesus has somewhere to go, and Jesus is walking, and somebody cries out a second time, and Jesus freezes, and he looks directly at them. What do you want me to do for you? What would you say if God asked, what do you want? Well, what do they say? They have a simple prayer request. Lord, will you heal our eyes? There's more than one word in the Greek language, the Koine Greek language, that is, for eyes. This word, eyes, is this. It's ophthalmi. It's the word that means ophthalmologist. I just went to the ophthalmologist because my eyes were burning and come to find out I needed new lenses for my eyeglasses. Ophthalmi, it's a word that means biological eyes. What does the gospel tell us? Jesus, this is what we want, that you will touch our ophthalmi. Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on them. I thank God that Jesus has compassion. Can I just tell you, Jesus has compassion on us. Even when we do stupid things, when you gaze into the eyes of God, he never frowns. And when you gaze into the eyes of God, you see a reflection of who you really are. God does not anoint who you pretend to be. God does not empower who people perceive you to be. God anoints who he created you to be. And... And when you gaze into the eyes of God, you catch a reflection of who, who you really are. All they wanted was to let their eyes land on Jesus. Lord, can you just heal our physical eyes? Jesus had compassion. And the Bible says, and he touched their eyes. But that word eyes is not the word ophthalmi. That word eyes is a word omaton. It's the same word that Plato used to describe the eyes of the soul. One of the early church fathers named Clement, you can read it if you want, Google it, First Clement chapter 19, verse 3, he uses the word omadan to describe the eyes of the soul. He says, we gazing upon him with the eyes of the soul will see his will. It's a word that in the ancient world people only use not to describe your cornea and your pupil and your retina, but to describe the eyes of the heart. That's how we truly see. Lord, will you touch our biological eyes? And Jesus had compassion and he touched their spiritual eyes and then their physical recite was restored. Before Jesus healed their physical eyes, he opened their spiritual eyes. Can you imagine for just a brief moment of time, we're not sure how long it lasted. The record doesn't tell us what we do know. For a brief moment of time, they looked at Jesus with spiritual eyes. They would have seen Jesus in the spiritual world, the one who radiates the glory of God. 
They caught a glimpse of Jesus that nobody else around them did. Why? Because of their passion. They learned to cry out more than once. Can you change God's mind? I have no idea. What I do know is we can influence his heart. And what caught the attention of Jesus on that Jericho Road, a city of broken walls that became a city filled with broken people, what caught the attention of Jesus was not their condition. It was their passion. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. I write about it in the book Grace in the Valley. I'm not sure when it was, but I was here a year or two ago and I shared something that I guarantee everybody forgot. But I talk about Psalm 23. I devoted about three years to studying Psalm 23. And um, I learned a lot about the, the mighty one from the Psalm. Discovered that it says he makes us lie down in green pastures and we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's easy to walk through green pastures and lie down in the valley. But the green pasture and the valley are actually the same place. It says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And where does God prepare the table? He does not prepare the table in the green pasture. He prepares the table in the valley. The valley of the shadow of death, but it's only a shadow. And in Grace in the Valley, I actually write a little bit about the blind beggars in Matthew 20. There's a relationship between the story we talked about today in Psalm 23 that I don't have time to get into. But I write this, there are times when God, often described in scripture as our father, he takes us by the hand and he leads us to the barren place so we can have front row seats and watch as he makes it bloom. I can just imagine there being a time when maybe it was an angel. We don't pray to angels, we don't worship them, but they are very involved in the lives of humans. Or maybe an angel made sure that on that day, another beggar didn't prop up at that spot on the road. Maybe, maybe there were a few servants of fire who stood over here and said, hey, I want you to watch this. This is one of the days that he told us about. For after all, he declares the end from the beginning. This is one of those moments. You don't want to miss it. Come here. And they watch. As the blind men by the Jericho Road, begging. And of all people, Jesus of Nazareth walks by. Jesus, who's not too busy or too important to slow down and listen when somebody cries out. The reality is, is that God deeply loves you. And you may have cried out to him before and felt like nothing happened, but I can assure you, something always happens. But I also want you to know it's okay to cry out more than once. And in a moment, we're going to cry out and believe God for breakthrough and miracles. But before we do that, I wanna ask 
a question. If you're in the room today and you would be honest and vulnerable and open and say, you know what, Heath, today I need to ask Jesus to come into my life. I want to ask Jesus to forgive me. I'm not asking if you've been baptized in water. I'm not asking if you've been to catechism classes or confirmed. I frankly don't care if you go to church or not right now. I'm not talking about those things. What I'm talking about is, do you know him? Does God recognize you? Does God recognize you right now? Do you even recognize you anymore? As you look at your life and you, and you look at where you are on the road, and I would suggest that Jesus is in our midst just like he was the blind beggar. And did you ever think you would end up where you did today? The good news is, is you're not destined to be stuck. The good news is, is that Jesus can take you no matter where you are on the road, even if you're blind and begging, spiritually speaking, he can take you and he can invite you into the next chapter of God's beautiful story for your life. I'm not asking if you're a good person, I'm asking, Today, do you want to make things right with God? And the only way to do that is through Jesus. I'm going to ask you to be bold. And you may be the only one. I was the only one when I was 17. And I thank God that I did not allow the opinions of people to get in the way of what God thought about me. There are two types of people in this room. There are people who know him and people who don't. And I can assure you, the overwhelming majority of people who know him are about to celebrate and cheer you on if today you need to make that decision. You don't need to wait until Easter. As a matter of fact, you're probably going to bring your family here on Easter. You're probably going to bring your coworkers here on Easter. But today, God brought you here. Do you need to make things right with God? If that's you, quickly and boldly lift your hand up in the air. Let me see it. Up, 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 up. That's a good move. Thank you, sir. Thank you, miss. Anybody else? That's a good move. Keep it up, please. Good choice, sir. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay. If you raised your hand, I'm going to pray over you, and I want to invite you. I want to invite you to come. Come quickly. Come quickly. Come meet me up here, please. Come on, church. Let's put our hands together. There are about 10 or 12 people that raised their hands. Come on. Come on. Let's cheer them on. In the balcony, we'll wait for you. Come on. Let's cheer them on. That's a good choice. That's a good move. I'm proud of you. That's a good choice, young lady. Anybody else? Anybody else? Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. I'm going to ask everybody to stretch your hand out towards our new friends. What's beautiful about this church, it's not a room full of strangers. It's a family of people. And I can assure you there is absolutely no judgment in this room. There's only love. We're cheering for one another. We're fighting for one another. And we're all on the same journey. Let's pray. And those of you who came forward, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. The prayer is not magical. What's magical is the feeling we have in our heart behind the prayer. Okay? I'm going to ask everybody to join me in prayer today. Okay? Out loud. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. I ask your forgiveness. And from this day on, no matter where I go, no matter what I do, I'm yours. Amen. 
I'm going to ask those of you who came forward, quickly slip over here. Quickly slip over here. They're going to give you some materials. It'll just take a couple minutes. Come on. Let's cheer them on. I want to ask one more quick question. If you're in the room today and you would say, I've already cried out to God. I've cried out to God before, but today I'm willing to cry out again. If there's a need in your life, I want to pray over you just right where you are. If you would say, I've cried out to God for something before, and today I have faith to cry out to God again. If that's you, if you need a miracle, a breakthrough, a hard place to soften, a dead place to come alive, a barren place to bloom, where you are, I want to pray over you right now. Lift your hand up. Okay. Father, I pray that you will send the rain of heaven that the dry place will begin to bloom. That the dead place will come alive. I pray that the Lamb of God will receive the reward of your suffering in every single situation. You are the God who declares the end from the beginning. You are the God who calls things out that are not as though they were. And right now, whether it's the second time, a fifth time, or the thousandth time, we lift up our voice and like the blind men, we cry out. I want you to lift up your own voice right now and in your own words, cry out to God. Let God hear your prayer. Touch my daughter, touch my son. God, heal my marriage. God, heal me from diabetes. <laughs>